As part of Ferrari Fridays, William Ross from the Exotic Car Marketplace will be discussing all things Ferrari and interviewing people that live and breathe the Ferrari brand. Topics range from road cars to racing, drivers to owners, as well as auctions, private sales, and trends in the collector market. Welcome back to the Ferrari Marketplace. This is William. I am your host. Now, um, kind of touching base on things like I had stated before, you know, <laughs> kind of noticing downloads and whatnot, what seems to be getting the most. And it obviously seems to be more about the cars and history than so much about events. I know like a lot of you guys, I know a few of you have downloaded, you know, to kind of get the background and events. So I, I guess it all depends on one's personal interest and tastes and what they want to know and learn just knowledge wise. Um, Obviously, I'm gonna still, you know, do it because I, I attend quite a few events throughout the year, especially Ferrari events. Um, I'm gonna kind of keep, you know, bringing those up because I think it's, it's intriguing and it's interesting stuff to people, uh, especially ones that you know don't have the opportunity to go to these events. Um, you know, there's all the, you know, the Ferrari uh, owners clubs all across the United States. So there's a lot of events that these are, you know, get put on. And I said, by no means do you have to own a Ferrari to partake and enjoy the the brand itself. So like I said, anyone listen to this, even if you don't own a Ferrari, which, you know, majority of us don't, um, you know, definitely go and partake. These guys are super friendly. They're more, more than happy to bring, bring someone in and show them around and just even, you know, take for a ride, what have you. So don't be afraid to attend a Ferrari event if you don't have a Ferrari. So, hey, definitely, you know, get out there and uh, attend it and support the brand. Um, but anyways, kind of getting back, and like I've said before in previous ones, you can't hold it against me how, I don't know, <laughs> I won't say bad, but, you know, I'm just getting started in doing these podcasts, so trying to get them more smooth and getting the content correct and how to present it, you know, I'm ironing things out. So, you got any suggestions, hey, shoot me an email, william at theferrarimarketplace.com, um, you know, give me any thoughts, ideas for a podcast or episode of car you'd like me to talk about, anything, you know. Anything specific you'd like me to talk about? Hey, just let me know. I'm all ears. I am all ears. So getting to it, today's episode, we are going to talk about the infamous Luigi Chinetti. Um, as everyone knows that is familiar with this brand, he's basically the man that kind of, that I, I guess, you know, if you look at the story, you know, he is the guy that brought Ferrari to America, uh, basically. But what's kind of isn't a little bit known is he kind of, I want to say resurrected, but got got Ferrari pointed in the right direction. But he played a huge role in getting to getting Enzo to start building road going cars to support the racing enterprise. Because as everyone knows, only reason he built those road going cars was to support his racing. Because that's all Enzo was about was racing team his racing team. Um, so Chinetti played a big role, I get in you know convincing him to go forward. That now, I mean. How much of it true is unknown because the conversation was just between Enzo and Luigi. So, but people in the know seem to confirm this. Um, so it's rather interesting. But let's get you know stir on this now. Luigi was born July seventeenth, nineteen oh one. He was uh, it was just north of Milan. I'm not going to attempt to name the uh, town or county or whatever you want to call it because my Italian's terrible, terrible, and it's. Giago con Orago. I know, like I said, don't hold this against me. I do not speak Italian at all, and I, I can't. My accents are terrible. So, but anyways, 
you know, his father was a gunsmith, uh, and he apprenticed in his father's workshop, and he earned his uh, lathe operator certificate at age 12. Now, think about that. This day and age, if you had a kid that got in there working and he got a certificate to work a lathe at 12, I mean, you'd have, you know, a lot of agencies on you for uh, child abuse. Um, but different times back then, you know, you had you did what you did uh, to support yourself. School actually wasn't a priority. More it was is about supporting the family and earning money. So he got his lathe, uh, lathe operator certificate at age 12, then he qualified as a mechanic at age 14. Now, at age 16 in 1917, he went to work for Alfred Romeo as a mechanic, where he met another guy that was also working there as a mechanic and worked for racing by the name of Enzo Ferrari. Um, so with things kind of going on, you know, this is the age and era of Benito Mussolini, uh, the fascist party rising up in Italy and kind of, kind of taking things over. Um, so things got a little bit sketchy, uh, a bit murky there in Italy. So he packed up his bags and that, and he went to uh, Paris where he worked for Alfa Romeo as a salesman. So you kind of see he's already kind of at a very young age kind of getting around and making himself known uh, in the automotive world, which in all honesty, back, you know, you're, you're only talking, you know, the late teens, early 20s, where, you know, the automotive industry was still in its infancy. Um, you know, shit, I mean, the first cars only hadn't been running for what, not quite 20 years or just a little over 20 years by that point. Um, so making your way and getting that part is, is, you know, very, very commendable on his part. Um, so while he was obviously working as, you know, working for Alfred Mayer as a salesman, and he started, you know, also I say moonlighting, but also working as a mechanic for the racing sports car drive, you know, team and that stuff. He also started driving too. And he's a really good driver. I mean, really good driver. Um, you know, he raced in Le Mans numerous times, um, you know, from 1932 to 1953, He's won it three times. We'll touch base on that a little bit later in this, in this podcast. Um, but, you know, driving cars from, you know, Alfa Romeo, Talbot, and Ferrari, you know, he was rather successful uh, in his racing career. So you, you got to give him kudos to that. So, but, you know, following the outbreak in World War II, you know, um, he had the opportunity to come to the United States with uh, Lucy O'Reilly Schnell uh, of Ikario Blue team. Uh, again, if I pronounce these wrong, I apologize. Don't hold it against me. But it was for uh, driver Rene Dreyfus, and it was for the Indy 500 in 1940. So, you know, as timing we have it, this was great because it got him out of Europe right when basically the you-know-what hit the fan. So timing was perfect. So, I, you know, he went went there and stayed, you know, did the race, but then he ended up staying there, and he stayed in New York. And he got approval, uh, I guess a work visa, work permit, whatever, I'm not sure back then what they might have called it. But he got a job working at Pratt & Whitney uh, to support the Allied war effort. And then he got, you know, uh, working there. He you know, started working on Rolls-Royce engines. And he uh, met a master mechanic by the name of Alfred Momo. Now, during this time, you know, he applied for American citizenship in 1947. And he took his oath of allegiance on March 6th of 1950. And this is kind of a little uh, tidbit note. His naturalization papers was sponsored by Zora Arcus Duntoff. As people with uh, Corvette, you know, knowledge, uh, he's the father of the Cor uh, Corvette. So imagine having that. That's your man that supported you and sponsored you in the United States. And that's pretty impressive. Um, so, you know, he was working, you know, supporting whatever, whatnot. So really not 
you know, obviously auto racing and everything as a whole was basically put on hold, especially over in Europe. Now, you know, in the United States, it was, you know, it was still kind of going on, but not to the extent that it was prior to the war and after the war. You know, because obviously everything was getting pushed and driven towards, hey, support the war effort, support the war effort, you know, gas rationing, the whole nine yards. So anyways, um, when the war finally ended, you know, Chinetti decided, you know, he returned to Europe in late 1949. Uh, so he first went to Paris to see if his house was still there and trying to see if, you know, if he still had a place, you know, that was there he could stay at and live. Well, it turns out it was gone. So from there, he carried on. He went down to Modena to meet with Enzo and kind of talk about things. And, you know, during the war, you know, Enzo's plan, they you know, were, um, you know, got converted, uh, you know, got, you know, nudged to build machine tools. You know, obviously it was for the war effort. You know, and Enzo was, you know, he was a big racing guy and car guy too, prior to the war, but this is what he had to do. So anyways, Chinetti went down. It was Christmas Eve. And he met in Ferrari's office, and obviously this was prior to the other big factory. He still had a smaller one that was in Modena, not over Marinello yet. But anyways, you know, again, this is kind of where things might get a little murky, the second hand, third hand, kind of that thing. But basically, Enzo was, you know, a bit despondent, you know, because, you know, he felt bad because he abandoned building the sports cars and whatnot, you know, and he had to go in this. And so Chinetti says, hey, look, you need to stop making the machine tools you know, and resume building your racing cars, but you also need to start building road-going cars to support that. He goes, I can sell them in, you know, Paris and France and in the United States. And right then and there, without having, you know, any orders or anything, and he placed an order for 25 cars. Talk about ballsy. No orders, nothing. He says, you know, I, I'll, I'll take 25 cars right off the bat and say, and I'll get them sold. So that kind of got the, uh, I guess, gas going in Enzo's veins and got him, all right, I can do this, we get going. So, but, you know, in June of that year, so six months later, seven months later, roughly, you know, um, he already started, began building that one new 125 that he was going to go racing with. Um, you know, a V12 engine designed by Colombo himself, that great Colombo V12. And in 19, September 46, it fired up on the test bench. I mean, so basically what, um, a year from start to finish to have a car and an old motor, everything like that. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Um, so that's when Enzo, you know, he started outlining all the other type of cars he wanted to plan to build and what he wanted to do and, and the whole nine yards basically setting in place the Ferrari image and the Ferrari legacy. So, so from there, you know, Chinetti, you know, he was obviously – in France, you know, in this meantime, he was still selling some pre-war alphas and Talbots to American customers and stuff like that. Um, but again, be, he did not have be in the position to make that thing for 25 cars. But anyways, Junior didn't care. So after that, too, it Chinetti became, you know, Ferrari's, you know, designated importer and seller um, of Ferraris in France and the United States. You know, not a, not a bad gig, huh? So anyways... Um, that kind of got him going to there, but I kind of want to talk about, you know, his, you know, his racing career a little bit. Um, like you said, he competed in Le Mans from 1932 to 1953. Uh, in 53, he didn't drive, though. He was just a sponsor of a car. But like I said, he won this three times, and he actually won Le Mans his first time out, driving an Alpha 8C, and he partnered with uh, his co-driver was Raymond Summer, and they won first time out. And so, outstanding achievement. So now also, he that following year, 
in the same HC. He won the spot 24 hours with Louis Chiron. So he's partnered up with some very, you know, talented, famous people from back in the day. Um, and, you know, obviously being very successful. Now, in 1934, he teamed up with Philippe, I can't pronounce the last name, and Itan Selian um, to win the second Le Mans 24 hours in 1934. So he's doing pretty well. Wins in 32, doesn't get in 33, then in 34, he comes with it. Now, I believe also that year he also won, um, I think in, for he won Spa, I know he won Spa again. So I mean, now he kind of had a lull, obviously, because of the war and everything like that. But in 1949, he was back at Le Mans with a Ferrari. And this was the first Ferrari ever to win the 24-hour Le Mans. And it was a Ferrari 16MM. And this is kind of, you know, the, the, the folklore and everything, which is great, because he had partnered with Baron Selston of Scotland uh, as his co-driver. And as you know... 24 hours, but back then it really wasn't any time limits like they have now. A certain driver can only drive so much. That's why now teams have, you know, three, four, five drivers. You're only allowed so much time behind the wheel. And back then it didn't matter. But 1949, he basically got a 20-minute respite from racing and got behind the wheel. So I don't know how much, you know, how he drove the first uh, first leg, how much he drove, I don't know if he drove for 14 hours, 16 hours, 18, whatever, then turn it over to Selson uh, for 20 minutes, and he got back in the car and finished off the last story. So I, I'm not quite sure exactly how it followed up. I, I, um, I tried to look online to try and figure that out, but I really couldn't find any documentation to say, okay, he drove for X amount, and Selson only drove for 20 minutes. But could you imagine that? Driving, basically, he basically drove 24 straight hours. And back then, actually, it wasn't, I want to say that unheard of because I know there's quite a few instances where an individual who raised did the whole 24 hours himself. Um, but can you imagine? I just don't get it. But now and you got to remember too, back then though, I mean, you're not talking the speeds they have now, the G force and everything like that. You know, that was more, you know, it was an actual endurance race where, you know, you had to take care of the car. You had to take care of your brakes. You know, you couldn't beat on this car. You had to be very fluid, very smooth. So, you're not talking the, the neck wrenching and stuff that you got going on and just this, you know, your, the concentration levels that you have to have this day and age. I mean, obviously back then you had to have those concentration levels, but especially because the course basically only was lit down the front straight and I think a couple of the corners. Other than that, it was pitch dark, in the, you know, at nighttime. And I, I'll always guys admit it, but just from memory and whatnot. But, I mean, that, that's just very, very, very impressive, though. Um, now – like I said, he, he won Spa, actually, uh, in 33. And, again, he won it in 1949 in that same 166MM uh, for driving Ferrari with uh, John Lucas. So, again, he had a lot of success also at Spa. You know, he said he also uh, posted winning in Paris 12 hours in a Ferrari uh, 166SC. And, again, in 1950 with a Tipo 16MM teamed up with John Lucas. So, again... He, this guy is very competitive and a very good driver. I mean, in 1951, he was a riding mechanic in the Ferrari 212 that won the grueling Carrera Pan America race. I mean, that's 2,100 miles over across five days across Mexico. That thing beat the living, you know what, out of you driving it. I mean, so look at that. I mean, and I guarantee he he drove 
some of that race, not just just right in the past race, right? I guarantee he drove some of that too. So, I mean, that's a heck of a racing resume just on that merit alone. So, now, um, getting back to, I guess, after his racing exploits and that, and, you know, obviously he was getting up there in a little bit of age. So, um, you know, I guess he's retiring from being behind the wheel. You know, not say if that's what his choice was, but it seems to be, you know, obviously he's getting up there um, doing it. So, you know, at this point then, so it, he's appointed, you know, the, the factory agent in the United States and he opens up his dealership and he's starting, you know, getting clients from all over the country because he, he's the only fire dealership and it's over on the, uh, in, uh, in Greenwich, Connecticut. So that's a far distance. We've got people in California and whatnot because obviously the convertibles and everything were a big hit back then. Um, but you know, so he started getting tons and tons of interest, you know, in the cars with that. And so he gets his first, um, first car he sold was a Tipo 166 MM touring Barchetta chassis number 0002M. It was sold to a Mr. Tommy Lee in Los Angeles in the first three months of 1949. So right there was the first car sold ever here. The first Ferrari ever sold here in the United States was a 166mm Barquetta, chassis number 0002M. So there you go. And the second car that was ever sold to his dealership was another Ferrari Tipo 166 Spider Corsa. Now that one was chassis 016-1. Now, or L, I believe, or I, something like that. I can't read the, my handwriting. But that was sold to everyone's favorite, and everyone knows who he is, favorite sportsman, Briggs Cunningham. So, and he actually drove that to second place at Watson's Glens in a race in 1949. So right out of the box, that thing was ready to go. Um, that car is actually in Cunningham's uh, museum currently. So, which I would believe is the Revs Institute because it kind of went to Miles Carter and Connecticut's, you know, Cunningham's and whatnot. Um, his third Tipo 166 MM Barquetta 0010M sold to a, a heir to the Kimberly, Kimberly Clark tissue paper fortune. Jim Kimberly. So obviously he had the money at his disposal and be able to purchase the car. Now he entered it in his few events, but, um, you know, not, not like, I guess you'd say, uh, a huge background racing user, but, um, they actually won an event in 1951. Uh, and that was the first Ferrari in the United States to win an event in the United States. So that was rather interesting little tidbit information. So the third Ferrari ever sold, Hey, Again, the first Ferrari to ever win a race here in the United States. Now, this next person, uh, this next one he sold in 1952. I'm, um, it was a 1951 212 Export Barquetta 0078E. Now, he sold that to everyone's Formula 1 favorite, Phil Hill. Um, so, this is kind of where the relationship and, I guess, you know, say, Kennedy's relationship with Enzo started I guess, grooming American drivers to go race for Ferrari. Uh, because not only would it be uh, Phil Hill, you know, you got uh, Dan Gurney, Mastin Gregory, quite a few uh, American drivers came up through, as we all know, the ones he created was NART, the North American Racing Team, um, you know, to get people, you know, into Formula One drives. Um, so anyways, he sold that car to Phil Hill and, you know, Kennedy would later hire Hill as a driver, and you know, obviously, he recommended him to Enzo himself, and the rest is history. 
Now, a little background on you know Phil's case is Enzo utilized them more in the sports car racing aspect of it, not the open wheel F1 stuff. But uh, due to circumstances, he ended up getting in to the F1 car, and we know what happened there. He ended up, you know, winning the F1 championship after the sad death of uh, Von Trips uh, at was it Monza? I believe it correctly it was. Um, if I'm wrong, just let me know correctly. But I believe that it was a Monza. It was an Italian one. I believe it was Monza. Um, so Von Trips was killed. So then Phil went on to take the title uh, after that. So obviously, you know, things are going well. And this is where, you know, in the um, early 50s, you know, where Kennedy forms the famous NART racing team, North American racing team. Uh, he got financial support from uh, George Arentz and Jan de Vroom. Um, You know, they were obviously good customers. And so they were able to help fund his team, which, as we all know, was exceptionally successful, uh, especially in endurance racing at, you know, at Sebring's Le Mans right up in the 1970s. Now, um, for F1, Ferrari actually did a few races races um, under the NART banner of racing Ferraris. They were 158s, and they actually painted them blue and white for the races, so it wasn't in their traditional red. Um, that was in the 1964 season. Now, um, it would, um, I'm trying to figure out how to word this next part. Um, for some, you know, the FIA, it, uh, you know, refused to homologate the 250 LM for international sports car racing. So Enzo, Returned his competition lights, vowed to never race in a Ferrari, you know, Ferrari red again. Um, you know, so, you know, a little tiff here. You know, Enzo liked to throw his weight around. So that's why you had the NART colors for the 1964 United States Grand Prix at Watkins Glen. And again, at the Mexican Grand Prix of 1964. So in 1965, the dispute was resolved. The cars are painted one red once again. So he had that little short period of time where Ferraris weren't racing in red. They were you know, under the colors of where's racing. Now there's some, you know, famous ones that were blue um, that were raced also, I believe it was Sterling Moss who raced his, it was a blue one. Um, but that was under a different thing, not NART. But, you know, so it kind of just, just shows, you know, Enzo's, <laughs> I guess, stubbornness in regards to wanting to get his way. Um, and now, you know, there's the great stories regarding some special cars, you know, um, and here in America, obviously, you know, convertibles were huge, are huge, you know, very big draw. And, you know, over Europe, eh, not so much. But I think one of the most famous was the Nart Spider that he got commissioned, for, you know, commissioned them to build. Um, they were supposed to do 25, but only 10 were built. Um, I know a few years ago, one sold for, was it mid-20 million range, 27 million, I think, after all said and done with fees and whatnot. Um, so they're out there, but only, only 10 were built. Um, one of the famous owners was a Mr. Steve McQueen, you know, but, you know, Chinetti had to really convince and twist Enzo's arm to build these cars and prove that there was a market for them. Um, you know, so thank God he did, you know, because it was kind of basically a continuation of the California Spider which was a you know, gorgeous car itself. But, you know, if you've ever seen one of those NART Spiders, uh, the 275 NART Spiders in person, 
Those things are absolutely stunning. Um, you know, so kind of moving on. So, you know, obviously he's getting up, I guess, say retirement age and whatnot. You know, this is you know, in the mid-70s. Um, in the mid-70s, he, you know, he commissioned Giovanni Michelotti, if I'm saying that right, to uh, build a, a series of Ferrari Daytonas, which in essence, they were never called Daytonas from the factory. The only reason it got the name there, the 365s, was they had won Daytona that year, the first year that, that car came out. So they just kind of got pegged and stuck with the Daytona name. So everyone just calls them Daytonas. But it was never officially called a Daytona from the factory. But anyways, that's what they always just go by now. Um, but he worked. He partnered with Michelotti to uh, produce some heavily customized uh, 365 uh, race cars. And they were the 365 GTB4 Daytona Nart Spiders. Um, so this was shown at the 1974 Turin Auto Show. Uh, a second conversion was done for, on chassis 15965 and was built up as a racing car for uh, an anticipation of an appearance at the 1975 24 Hours Le Mans. Um, some reason, the car was withdrawn before the race, so it never raced. Not sure where that car is at currently. Some of you out there probably know. Uh, shoot me an email. Let me know. William at the marketplace.com. I love knowing and want to know the history and stuff where these cars went. Um, so he ordered three more of those conversions for road car specifications. Um, and one was gifted to his wife. So I'm not quite sure where the rest of them are at. I, um, I, I know they're floating around there. So like I said, anyone knows kind of on that? Let me know. I really uh, kind of like to kind of close the book on that story in regards to where those things went. So anyways, um, that's pretty much, you know, his story because I believe after we got done with that, um, I'm not too sure. I think it was in 1977, he sold the, you know, sold the dealership, sold the business. Um, and, you know, obviously went into retirement, stayed in Greenwich, uh, enjoyed his life. Obviously, he's a very popular guy and, you know, knew a lot of people. So I'm sure he was an extremely busy man uh, after that. And he uh, ended up passing away on August 17th, 1994, at the age of 93. So you, you want to talk about living your best life. You know, that guy, you know, had a, did a fantastic, fantastic job on living his best life. I mean, just all the stories, history, and there's a lot of stuff there. In the next episode, I'm actually going to talk about uh, the 1965 Le Mans winning 250 LM that was under the Nart Spider banner that went on to win Le Mans. And, but there's a great story behind that car and the guys driving it and just basically not wanting to be there. So stay tuned for the next podcast because we're going to talk about that car because there's a great story and history behind that car, not just the Le Mans race, but everything else about it. But anyways... Uh, that's my uh, kind of story here and background on Luigi Cinetti. Um, I apologize. I'm sure I missed a lot. I mean, you know, this is what I could dig up. There's so much stuff out there on the gentleman. Uh, I kind of want to just touch on the big things that uh, I felt were you know, important. Um, but he was a fantastic individual. You know, you read the stories and, you know, people that were met, were friends with him, whatnot. It's just he was a very gracious, generous man, super nice. But, and he just had a head for racing and knew how to do what he did. So congrats to him. So anyways, that's it. I'm wrapping up. Uh, again, I really appreciate everybody downloading and listening. And again, be patient with me as I try and get these things worked out um, as I get more episodes under my belt. Uh, I'll get a little smoother. Hopefully the sound's okay. I'm using this one program, so hopefully everything sounds good. But again, any thoughts, any suggestions, insights, please just shoot me an email, william at theferrarimarketplace.com. I appreciate it, guys. Till next time, take it easy.
This episode has been brought to you by Grand Touring Motorsports as part of our Motoring Podcast Network. For more episodes like this, tune in each week for more exciting and educational content from organizations like the Exotic Car Marketplace, the Motoring Historian, Brake Fix, and many others. If you'd like to support Grand Touring Motorsports and the Motoring Podcast Network, sign up for one of our many sponsorship tiers at www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports. Please note that the content, opinions, and materials presented and expressed in this episode are those of its creator, and this episode has been published with their consent. If you have any inquiries about this program, please contact the creators of this episode via email or social media, as mentioned in the episode.